we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we need your grace this morning. We need, uh, we need your grace to hear you. We need your grace to see you. We need your grace to follow you. We are desperate sinners. Our nature drives us from you and we are alienated from you and we need you to pull us toward you. Give us grace to fix our eyes and ears and minds on your son Jesus and on his word this morning. God, we know that we often have distractions and we have troubles and we have trials that are going on in our lives and these things threaten to keep us away from you, keep us away uh, from your body, from your people on Sunday morning. And uh, God, even when we physically get there, we sometimes are mentally not there. So give us passion to worship you, to worship you in singing, to worship you in hearing, to worship you in praying. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Christina, could you close the, the front door? Traffic distracts me. We, uh, we have this saying in our, in our culture, uh, seeing is believing. I was wondering, where does that come from? I don't think anyone is quite sure, but the first recorded instance of it is from 1639 in a book of well-known sayings. So it obviously it goes back further than that. Um, last night, my, my son and I had a little bit of an argument, uh, a little bit of a debate, a discussion. We don't know exactly what happened, but I will lay out the facts as I know them. And you tell me, you know, perhaps what you think happened. It's possible, but wait until you hear the facts. And I got his permission to, to talk about this. So, we're watching Ben and Aubrey's dog because Ben and Aubrey uh, are, are in Canada. Uh, unfortunately, there was a, a death in Ben's family. And uh, we rotate job duties. We have other animals at the house. And so uh, it was Jonah's week to take care of animals. And that just means he got an extra one this week uh, watching Galadriel, which, yes, is her name. And uh, so I asked him to get her water. Now, uh, it was about the same time that we were going to feed the cat. The cat lives outside, and the cat and Galadriel... Galadriel doesn't really care, but the cat doesn't really like Galadriel at all. So we decided to put Galadriel outside, bring the cat in, feed the cat. We don't feed the cat outside because we don't like to attract all the other neighborhood cats. We have one cat we take care of, that's it. That's the rule. If she dies, we'll talk. But. So anyhow, we, uh, we make this exchange, and, and I'm like, look, you got to get her some water. 
All right, so then after the cat finishes eating and we send the cat back outside and we bring Galadriel back inside, I'm looking at the water bowl, she's kind of thirsty, and there's like hard, there's still hardly any water in there. I said, Jonah, I thought, you know, you were supposed to get her water. He's like, I did. I'm like, well, there's no water in there. I mean, there's just, just the, the same little bit of water in there that was before. I said, well, I don't know. I gave her water. I'm like, well, I'm looking at the water, and I'm seeing that there's not much water in there. And, and, and so I don't think you, you gave her water. Yeah, I'm just going to have the fact. You know, I, he's like, maybe she drank it. I'm like, Jonah, she was outside. She was far away from the water ball and separated by walls and boundaries and doors. There's no way she drank the water. Did the water mysteriously disappear? I don't know what happened. I know I gave her water. I'm like, well, he's like, I'm mad. You don't believe me, Dad. I'm like, well, it's not that I don't believe you, but you're asking me to believe against the laws of physics. You know, like, water does, just doesn't disappear. It was a very swift evaporation. There was a momentary heat source on top of the water bowl, evaporated out, dispersed in the air. I don't know what happened. All I know is that my eyes, seeing is believing, saw approximately, roughly, I had never measured it, but the same amount of water in the bowl that was there before. And, and even Jonah had to admit that the water level seemed very low. You know, but at the same time, he swore that he gave her water. I don't know what happened, but I trust my eyes, right? I trust my eyes. Seeing is believing. And my seeing said that she had not received extra water. John, uh, in his gospel, in his prologue to his gospel, sort of turns that on its head. See, for, for John, he's going to make the case that it's not so much as seeing is believing as much as believing is seeing. So as we look at John's gospel, at the beginning of John's gospel, it kind of introduces us to Jesus Christ. And, and again, he gives us sort of this high view of Jesus, this cosmic view of Jesus, and he draws us in. And, and if you've never read John's gospel, I'm hoping that through this series you're just drawn to this figure of Jesus and you, and you want to, to know him more and seek him more. And, and that's part of the goal of it. And so this morning, I, we're going to look at what John has to say about this Jesus and and what he wants to get across in verses 14 through 17 is that Jesus reveals the glory of God. And it doesn't work the way we might expect it. So I'm going to unpack that idea. He, he, he kind of has that idea fleshed out in four or five points. Um, and, and, and so I'll, I have four or five points, depending on how you want to divide this up. And, and we're going to break this down and, and look at it this morning. And the, the first thing that John wants us to see is that, so to speak, see, uh, Jesus' glory is revealed in his incarnation. Let me break down what I mean by that. And you see that in the first part of, of verse 14. And, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me just dwell there for a second. I'm going to go a little further. Let me dwell there for just a second. John says the word became flesh. And we dare not pass over that too quickly. John hasn't mentioned the word for a few verses uh, in this sermon series. It's been uh, three weeks since we have seen the word. And, and the word for John was this, this figure who was both with God and is God. And has existed since the beginning. But he's the one through whom all things were made. 
And this word, who was with God and who is God, becomes flesh. And this is a really important idea that we, we cannot uh, uh, just blindly, cursory glance, look at and move on. Because this is an incredibly important point. That Jesus, the word, became flesh. This would have been an idea that would have been scandalous in John's day, and frankly, it's scandalous in our day. The idea that the, the, the divine being, this divine being somehow takes on, becomes human flesh. John could have easily said something like, the, the word made himself uh, look to be flesh. Uh, he, he could have said something that would have allowed us to read, uh, he appeared to us as flesh. He manifested himself in flesh. But John doesn't say that. That's not how this thing worked. We call it an incarnation for a reason. Literally, from the Latin, to become enfleshed. That's what incarnation means. And so what John is saying is that this divine being became flesh. There is a, a, a divine spiritual and natural coming together in this person, the Word, that would not have been uh, comfortable for the Greek philosophers, it would not have been comfortable for the Gnostic thinkers, and it's certainly not comfortable for our naturalistic worldview in 21st century Western culture. And yet that is who this Jesus is. And it says... Not only the word become flesh, and he dwelt among us. And this is, again, another idea that we don't want to pass over too quickly. When John says that he dwelt among us, he is using a, a term that, going back into the, the Hebrew Old Testament, is connected with the idea of the tabernacle. The, the, the word here to, to dwell somewhere, it was sort of to pitch a tent and uh, put up residence for a period of time. And it was connected, it was cognate, would be the fancy linguistic term, with the term for the tabernacle. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the, the tabernacle was the place where God met with the Israelites in the wilderness. So when the Israel's, Israelites came out of Egypt... They were rescued by God's mighty hand. Uh, he sent these plagues on Egypt and, and Pharaoh and, and forced Pharaoh's hand to release them. And God was going to take them into the land of Canaan. But in the meantime, they had to get from Egypt to Canaan. And that took a little longer than expected because of some sin issues on the Israelites' part. And God instructed Moses and the Israelites to construct a tabernacle. And if you read the description of it, it was, it was functionally a movable tent, a very large tent enclosure, but it was a movable tent. It was, the, uh, it was before there was a temple. The temple was built on a similar plan, but the, the tabernacle was a movable uh, dwelling place in the wilderness. It was called a tabernacle because God, it was the place where God himself, Yahweh, would meet with the Israelites. He's, his glory would descend and his presence would be there among the Israelites and that is how they knew God was with them. That's how they worshiped God. It was their central worshiping place. And so God's 
glory and presence was among the Israelites. And so when John says that Jesus uh, dwelled among us, he's literally saying that that Jesus sort of tabernacled among us. And and for the, the first century Jew picking up John's gospel, they would have heard here something akin to to this idea of the place where God dwelt with the Israelites. So to this divine being is taking on flesh and dwelling with us. It's kind of a big deal. And so John says, we have seen his glory. And on some level that makes sense. Okay, so 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 this divine word comes down, makes a home among us for a a temporary basis, and so through that, we're able to behold His glory. But John wants to make an emphasis here, a second point. And he wants us to know very clearly that Jesus' glory is the divine glory. It's the glory of God. And he starts to make that case in the second part of verse 14. So he says uh, that we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We've already seen that the tabernacle was the place of God's meeting with Israel in the wilderness. So this would have already been especially to a Jewish reader familiar with the, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, would have immediately probably had these connotations spinning in their mind. But John is going to push it a little farther. He, he says that uh, he had a glory. We've seen Jesus' glory. Okay, he says his glory. But it's well, describe that for me, John. It says his glory as the only son from the Father. And here we come up with a really, really important word. John, if you read through his gospel and you read through it carefully, you see that John, uh, the author, loves wordplay. And he loves little linguistic twists. And and he loves the fact that Jesus loved linguistic twists. And he sort of highlights those in his narrative of Jesus' life. But this uh, this passage is full of, of those sort of twists uh, that John is incorporating here. And this is one of them. It's really... because of all these little twists that are going on, it becomes a little bit difficult to translate. And so every translation you pick up is a little bit different because they're trying trying to catch exactly what John's saying. And it's a little tricky. And and so don't be too scandalized here, but but the word son, in in at least the translation that we're looking at here, is sort of an interpolation. It's it's not, the, the, the word son wasn't written in Greek, but we're trying to make sense of what John is trying to say here. If we were to be really, really literal, uh, it, it would be something like glory as the one and only from the Father, or glory as the unique one from the Father, or glory as of the beloved from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a, it's a word that they actually confounded scholars for a number of years. Monogenes, if you care. Uh, if you don't care, just babble some Greek. But the, the word is, uh, the word that we see in John 3.16, everyone knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, it, it's similar to the word begotten, but it's not actually begotten. It's something more like his unique son, his one and only son, his beloved son. It's the word that uh, Abraham, uh, that used to describe Abraham's son Isaac. as his monogenes, as his unique or 
or one and only. That we know that Abraham had more than one son. So it wouldn't be right to say that, it's Abra- that Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son. Because he had Ishmael. And then, and then uh, Abraham married again later in life. And uh, you know there were was, there was more kids that we don't know about. So uh, he didn't have just one son. Doesn't mean only begotten. But it does mean special, unique, different than all the others. Prestigious, important, almost bordering on beloved. That's why a lot of modern translations, you'll see John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or his unique son. And and that's sort of the sense that we have here, but that's sort of awkward English, right? Because the word son actually isn't in verse 14. Glory as of the one and only from the Father. It's a little little awkward. But there's something about uh, Jesus' relationship to the Father that is different from anyone else's relationship to the Father. He's one of a kind. He's of his own type. He is, yes, the Son, the eternal Son. But different in the way that he relates to the Father, so that you or I might relate to God the Father. And by saying that he has a glory as the, the unique one or the only one or the one of a kind from the Father, it's the kind of a, a relationship that only a father can give a son, that, that this glory he has is a glory that's bequeathed from the Father to the Son. Only the glory that God has himself is the only glory that the one and only can have. It is the glory of God. And then John says he's full of grace and truth. And it's hard to escape the, the connection here between the, the this and the, and the passage that Zach read for us this morning in uh, the end of Exodus chapter 33 and the beginning of Exodus chapter 44. Uh, in, in that passage, we have Moses, who is uh, in the process of bringing the Ten Commandments down. Or we're actually in between. If you know the story, Moses brings down the Ten Commandments once. He notices that the Israelites have already broken half the commandments uh, by worshiping other gods and engaging in all kinds of uh, activities in his absence. He breaks the Ten Commandments and he is pleading with God that this is a difficult thing. He asks God to show him uh, his glory. And God says, you can't, you can't see my face, but you can see sort of the afterglow of me as I go past by. Uh, you can see the backside of me. You, some, some would argue, argue that what uh, God actually says here is, you can't see my face, Moses, but you can see my butt. And think about this for a second. Moses sees the butt of God's glory and his face glows. How, how incredible is that? Uh, don't try that at home. Um, but, but God says as he passes by Moses on the mountain, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that word faithfulness is uh, related to the word truth. Being true to someone. And that idea of steadfast love is very, very much tied. It's the, it's the biblical term for God's covenant faithfulness. 
uh, an undeserved covenant faithfulness, his ability to stay faithful to us when we are unfaithful to him, and it is very tightly connected with the idea of grace. And John, of course, is going to bring up that episode later in this verse, too. And so the, the same sort of grace and truth or uh, full of mercy and, and faithfulness that's uh, recorded as belonging properly to Yahweh is being procreated here to the Word who was made flesh. Jesus' glory is God's glory. Third, John wants us to remember something about John the Baptist. So, different John. We've got John the Baptizer in the wilderness, and then there's John, the son of Zebedee, who is writing this book. And uh, sort of a parenthetical remark here. Some of your translations put it in parentheses, actually, to, to clarify that. Uh, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was... He of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And, and so John is setting the stage because once he gets past the prologue, he wants to talk about John the Baptist some more. So there's a narrative function of reintroducing John the Baptist here. But also he wants people to understand that this great Jewish prophet, John the Baptizer, John son of Zechariah, actually recognized Jesus as far preeminent over him. And, and he makes several points uh, using John's own words. Uh, but, but first of all, let's, let's deal with a, uh, a tense issue here. Uh, in verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out. And John actually writes that, that John bears witness. John gives testimony. Uh, John testifies about him. Present tense. John testifies about him and cried out past tense. And, and there's this sense that which the, in John's mind, John the author's mind, that the life and, and ministry and witness of John the Baptist has a continuing, it, it continues to speak to us today. And, and so, what was John's testimony? What, what did he mention? He says, this is the one, uh, of, uh, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's a little bit of a complicated saying, but the gist of it is, is pretty simple. Uh, you know, in the first century, and we have this idea, this idea of respect your elders and, and respect those who've come before you and have paved the way for you. And so there was a sense, and that was very much more strong in a, in a patriarchal, familial culture like ancient Israel. And so there's a sense in which uh, John the Baptist, as the, the forerunner whose ministry started first, who was born earlier, uh, is, is more important or preeminent over Jesus Christ. So that would be the natural way that someone would think about that in that culture. But John the Baptist says, no. No, this is the one I was telling you about. This is the one. He has surpassed me. He is far greater than me. He is much more important than me. And he says, here's why he's more important than me. He says, he existed before me. 
which is a powerful statement because if you know the history of John the Baptist, you know he was conceived first, you know he was born first, you know he started ministry first. And John the Baptist says he existed before me. John the Baptist testifies even to the fact that the word is eternal. And of course we get the Steve of witness again. John the Baptist's witness continues on beyond his death. We see it in the, in the pages of Scripture. And, and we see this, this theme that John, is going, John, the author, is going to use throughout his gospel that we are really witnesses, testifying. This is what we're called to be. If you're a Christian, you are called to testify to Jesus Christ. And it very well may be that if your testimony is faithfulness, is faithful, it will continue beyond your life as John's did. Fourth point that John makes in this passage is that Jesus' glory is revealed by grace. And we'll see this in verse 16 through 17. There's there's almost two points here, but they're they're so closely related. And, and they build on each other. I'm going to kind of treat them as, as one. But obviously there's a little bit more text here in verses 16 through 17. For, from, him full, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a sense that there, there's a, a for here, a because here... But there's a sense in which these verses explain more about how we have beheld his glory, glory as the one and only from the Father, than about why we have beheld his glory. And the first thing that John wants to say about the how here is that we have received from his fullness grace upon grace. So if you go back before the parenthetical remark, you got to see that the verse 16 kind of correct uh, connects most directly to verse 15, or excuse me, the end of verse 14, because 15 is sort of parenthetical. So if you're looking for like, the logic, of where does that 4 come from? Now that 4 connects back to verse uh, 15. He's full of grace and truth, and from that fullness... We have received grace upon grace. That's kind of an awkward expression, and that's kind of the traditional way it's been interpreted. There's there's a lot of funny things like that in the in the scriptures sometimes, where we've translated or interpreted something the same way for so many hundreds of years. That's like that's just the way everyone knows it, and so if you change it, it like messes with people's Bible memorization, and they get mad. Um, this, I mean, you think that's a joke, but it's like that legitimately happens, um, and and it's really it says grace anti grace. Anti-A-N-T-I, and we get the type, you know, anti, you know, anti-Christ and, and anti-slavery and anti-abortion. So we we get that that preposition A-N-T-I from from the Greek, and yeah, it, it means in place of something else. So the, the traditional way you look at it when you read English is, well, we've seen grace upon grace, and so oh, we've just gotten lots and lots and lots of grace from Jesus, which is true, of course. But I think it's not quite the idea that John is coming up with here. He's saying we've received grace in place of grace. Well, what does that mean? 
we've received grace in place of other grace. And I think he explains that then in verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Meaning, or if we put this another way, uh, the, the ability to uh, for us to behold the glory of Jesus is that grace and truth came through Jesus, whereas the law, uh, or really grace and truth came in the person of Jesus. Whereas the, the law merely came through Moses. Let me, elab- let me write that down a little bit more. Moses goes up the mountain. God speaks the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. It's sort of the heart of everything that we, uh, that we see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is, is summarized in these Ten Commandments. And we, we did a, a sermon series on those not too long ago. And so when we look at the law, what we're seeing is God's self-expression. Right? This, is, this is sort of God's heartbeat. This is what, what God loves. This is what righteousness looks like in the law. This is what, uh, how he wants to see people live. It reflects his character. It reflects his goodness. The law, as God's word, is something of God's self-expression. And God gave this self-expression through his prophet Moses. And that was grace. We oftentimes uh, consider grace and law to be an antithesis of one another. And that's true in a way. They are antitheses of one another in the sense of, of how we come to know God. And how we come to honor God. And how we come to worship God. In that sense, they are antitheses. But in another sense, law is not opposite of grace. Law is not opposite of grace in that law is grace. It's a gift from God. God didn't give the law to Moses and the Israelites to punish them. He didn't give it to them to make their their lives worse. He gave it to them to bless them, to show them what righteousness looks like, to show them the kind of uh, uh, lives he wanted his followers, his people to have as a redeemed people. And so the law was gracious. Even the Apostle Paul says, I know that the law is good and holy. And so the law was grace. It was a good gift from the Heavenly Father. But that grace has been surpassed in Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses. Yes. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God. The law was God's Word passed through Moses. Jesus is the Word. He is the very perfect self-expression of God given directly to us. He takes on flesh, tabernacles amongst us, lives among us. And so, a more perfect expression of God's heart and His character and everything He stands for is represented in the person of Jesus. 
And that just wasn't obvious to anyone. See, before this, we might have thought, if the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, we might be tempted to think that, okay, if you just look at Jesus, you're going to see the glory of God and you're going to fall down and you're going to worship Him. And we know from the rest of John's Gospel that just isn't what happened. See, Jesus was the representation and the realization and uh, the ability to behold the glory of God but not with the eyes of this world, but with eyes of faith, eyes that have been awoken by grace. You see, from his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the how you behold the glory of God. You want to know how you behold the glory of God? You receive the grace that Jesus brings in his very person that supersedes all the grace that God has bestowed on the world up to that point. Including, including the law, which would have been the most holy and, and, and perfect and gracious gift of God that the Jews recognized. And John wouldn't necessarily disagree. He's just saying that in Jesus, that has been surpassed. And the most perfect example of who and what God is like is in this Jesus. And until you receive the grace and truth of Jesus, you won't see the glory of God. And so here's, here's the thing. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the glory of God is like, if you want to see God, if you want to know God, Here's what John is telling us. It's perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ who, who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, who lived like any human being with all the, the sufferings and indignities of, of human life, all the illnesses and, and fears and concerns, and yet he was without sin. He, he dwells among us with all the temptations that this world has to offer, and yet is without sin. So that... We, who deserve to die for our sins, for our rebellion against our Heavenly Father, have an escape route, if you will, that Jesus dies on the cross in our place, paying for anyone's death and everyone's death who receives Him by His grace through faith. If you want to see the glory of God, you have to, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what Jesus' words were. He is the conduit of the divine. He is God in the flesh. And if you want to see God, if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to know God, you do it by receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. By recognizing his sacrifice, accepting him for who he is, trusting in him and repenting of your rebellion, turning back from your personal rebellion and leaning wholly on his goodness and his grace for salvation. 
So if you want to know God, if you want to see the glory of God, it's there. He is there. Seeing might not be believing, but believing is his might be seen. Let's pray. Father, we are neglectful. We are neglectful, God, of, of your grace and your goodness, and, and we forget our Savior. God, I pray that those who long to see you, to know you, recognize you would look to your son Jesus and call out to him beg of him as your servant Thomas did my Lord and my God and they would beg to receive his grace forgiven. I pray for those here who know him, that they would be, as your servant John the Baptist, faithful witnesses testifying even beyond their lifespan. May we cling desperately to Jesus as the one who reveals the glory of God. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to uh, uh, celebrate uh, communion uh, this month. Uh, we do every month <laughs> on the on the first of the month. Communion is a, a, a sacred meal. It is a, a rem- meal of remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And its significance to us. I'm going to uh, read what Paul had to say about it. We saw.